if you'll read along with me. This is the word of God. For the Lord spoke to, thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread, and he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, Inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth. But behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. O Lord, would you grant to us your spirit that we might see your word, your good news here in Isaiah's prophetic ministry. Give us, Lord, eyes to see and help us to believe that we might find life in this your Good news, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, the glitter of the Christmas season is a great distraction, isn't it? Distraction from the the normal calendar of your daily life. There's so much else to turn your attention to. Things like favorite family traditions or traditions with your friends, of of driving around to see the Christmas lights. A friend just last night told me they were going to going to go and drive and see the Christmas lights despite the traffic in so many places. And one of our favorite games is to drive around with a bag of M&Ms in the car. And every time we see in someone's yard a nativity scene, everybody gets an M&M. And who can spot the nativity scene for the benefit of the whole family? And I'm sure that the rule of one M&M per nativity scene is often stretched far. But there's a street in, in our neighborhood that, that we've gone to before which doesn't emphasize nativity scenes so much as another part of the Christmas culture. It's a long cul-de-sac. And somehow in ages past, the neighborhood on this cul-de-sac, the neighbors, that is, decided, and I would love to meet the person who orchestrated this, that they as a, as a street would display the, the 12 days of Christmas with Colorful cutout plywood boards showing all of the utterly impractical gifts that my true love gave to me. 
all lit up in bright display for everyone to see as they drive down the cul-de-sac and around and back up the cul-de-sac. You can see all 12 of them there. And it's a, it's a bright and shining display. But the problem is there are 14 houses on the cul-de-sac. There are only 12 days of Christmas. And what that means is that two of the houses got left out. And I don't know if they just opted out early on because they knew this was going to be a curse you know, if they were to sell their house, they would have to have it written into the contract. If you're going to buy your house, you have to do the 12 days of Christmas. Anyway, these two houses are conveniently on the end of the, the well, the beginning of the cul-de-sac. I guess it's at the very entrance. They're the two houses at the beginning. And maybe in rebellion against the rest of the neighborhood last year, they were pitch black, utterly dark. The, 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 the Grinch had come to these houses, even while all the rest of them were brightly displayed with the 12 days of Christmas. And Entering into that neighborhood, as so many people do to drive down and back, you're coming out of total darkness. And you drive down and back through the 12 days, and you enter back out into total darkness. It's a funny irony of that particular Christmas display. And it's easy for us to forget that Christmas itself really does come out of darkness. And and every year, maybe it seems even to recede back into the darkness as we forget the good news of it. Isaiah, this prince of the prophets, the one who had the ear of the kings, the one who gave some of the most majestic Christmas phrases that we cling to every year. Isaiah was a prophet in the darkness. He was a prophet in dark times, the darkness of the divided kingdom of of God's people. It was about 730 B.C., about seven centuries before the birth of Christ, that Isaiah was commissioned to be God's prophets. And since the death of King Solomon, there had been about 250 years of division in God's people. Solomon's son had unwisely, rashly acted and caused a division in the kingdom. And now there was Israel in the north and Judah in the south, an unevenly divided two kingdoms now of God's And for 250 years, the the kings of the northern kingdom, Israel, there were 19 of them, all of them from different families, and all of them ungodly men. All of them, without exception, every one of them turning away from Yahweh, who had made them and placed them there, and worshiping other so-called gods. Every one of them. In the south, on the other hand, there were a good number of kings, about the same number, but but only from the same family, only from the house of David, as God had promised would be the case. And many of them were good kings. Many of them were faithful kings who followed after the Lord and, and did as he had called them to do, as their fathers David and Solomon and others before them had done. But not all of them were good. Not all of them were. Ahaz was not. Ahaz was a despicable king. And he's one of the kings that comes to the throne during Isaiah's reign. And Isaiah begins chapter 7, which we read last week, with this cryptically ominous phrase. In the days of Ahaz, son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, trouble. The Israelites knew what was there. Looking back, they knew those were days of trouble. In the days of Ahaz, the days of his fathers before him were not so bad. But in the days of Ahaz, it was trouble. Because Ahaz had turned away from Yahweh. He had turned Judah 
to the Baals, the, the nature gods, the pagan gods of his day and of his culture. And God had disciplined for him for it. God had sent Israel, the northern kingdom, in particular the tribe of Ephraim, and their warriors to come and, and discipline Ahaz and Judah for his wandering ways. And God had also sent Syria, another neighboring nation, a small nation, to come and plague Ahaz militarily. And now had arisen the threat of Assyria, the superpower of the day, a little further to the east from where Jerusalem lay. And last week I told you the the little illustration story of the three mice, remember? And this is kind of what we have. We've got Judah and Israel and Syria, the three mice, who are arguing over a piece of cheese. And two of the mice team up against one of them, and the, the one mouse sees that he's outnumbered, and he says, I think I'll appeal to the cat for help. The unwise mouse that he is, and he calls his hope-to-be friend Assyria, the cat, the, the powerful superpower to come. And the master of the house even extends his hand to the mouse and says, I'll give you grace, I'll give you help. And the mouse says, no, I want the cat. This is the story of Isaiah and his prophecy that comes to us here. God had told Isaiah if you're not firm in the faith, then, 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 then you will not be firm at all. What faith is he talking about? He's, he's talking about what Isaiah had seen in chapter 6. You, you know that, that, that story of Isaiah and, and the angels, the seraphim, and holy, holy, holy. And, and Isaiah's prophecy extends through chapter 6, condemning Israel and Judah for their unfaithfulness to God. But it ends with a, a fascinating little verse at the very end of the chapter it says even though Judah and Israel are like an oak tree that's been cut off at the stump still there is a stump and the holy seed is its stump in other words God is promising gospel he's promising to continue to redeem even despite the shearing off of the tree that was Israel and Judah the faith to which God has called Ahaz is simply this God is with us. God is here with us. And with us, God is faithfully and patiently and powerfully and persistently and even stubbornly bringing the glory of redeeming grace to His people despite the darkness that surrounds them. He's doing it despite the unfounded fears of His people. You know, we all have fears. We're all afraid of different things. I'd be curious if we could all just... Write down your top two fears and pass it in and read the list and see what we come up with. We're all afraid of different things. Some fear rejection or failure or uncertainty. Some of you fear loneliness or or loss or the judgment of other people around you. Some of you are afraid of pain or inadequacy or of commitment even. Some of us fear intimacy or heights or so many of us fear death. Heck, some of us are just afraid of spiders and uh, clowns and snakes, you know, things like that. But we all have our fears. Fear abounds in this world, and, and fear abounded in Judah in Isaiah's time. And so Yahweh spoke again to Isaiah here with, with his strong hand on Isaiah upon him. He says, God warned him, don't call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and don't fear what they fear. Now, what they called conspiracy, I think, probably was just Isaiah himself. Because Isaiah 
had become the conspirator. He had become the traitor of the nation to King Ahaz. He had, after all, gone to Ahaz. You remember in chapter 7, he had gone to Ahaz. Ahaz was out at the, the pool, checking out the water supplies, getting ready for the siege of his neighbors who were coming to attack him. And Isaiah had gone to Ahaz and said, Ahaz, listen, God has sent word for you. Don't be afraid. Don't fear Ahaz. In fact, ask for a sign from God, and he will show you that he intends to protect his people, Judah, his throne. And, I, and Ahaz said, of course, no, I don't, I don't want the sign. And Isaiah said, you'll get the sign anyway, and the sign is this, the virgin will bear a child. And within the years that it takes for a child such as this to grow up and mature and choose good over evil, just within those few years, God will bring Assyria, and it will be like a river swelling to the banks and overflowing right up to the neck of Judah. It will almost drown you, Ahaz. And so now Isaiah is the conspirator. He's the the traitor. And the Lord says, no, listen, they're afraid of the wrong things. They fear the wrong things. Don't be stirred, Isaiah by their unfounded fears, because only one fear is proper. What does he say? Verse 13, The Lord of hosts, Him you shall honor as holy. Let Him be your fear. You know, Isaiah's famous vision in chapter 6 had completely set all things straight for him. He got to see something that, well, who gets to see this? You know the, the, the words there. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, seated on the throne, and the, the seraphim, the angels, up above him, calling out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the foundation, the, the thresholds of the temple shook at the sound of their voice. Isaiah saw this marvelous, amazing, and overwhelming, astonishing picture of God's holiness, His transcendence. And Isaiah had all things set straight for him at that moment because he knew that in comparison to this, there's nothing else to fear. What else is there to respect or regard in comparison to this? Isaiah knew it. He had seen it. And for us, we have to realize that to the extent that you live in fear of what is worldly, it's because you've not regarded as holy what is heavenly. The Duke and Duchess of Cambridge got to come and visit the United States this past week. Did you see that? They were on TV and and the news, different photo ops here and there. They even got to take in an NBA basketball game. They got to go and see the Cleveland Cavaliers play, I think, in Brooklyn. And after the game, they sat courtside, of course, in the prime seating. The prince and the princess, the duke and the duchess, and and there they were at the game. And after the game, their handlers, I guess the PR people, arranged what had to be arranged, that is, a meeting between American royalty and British royalty. LeBron James got to meet with with the duke and the duchess, and, and he presented to them game jerseys of the Cleveland Cavaliers as a gift and some other things as gifts as as one would do to a visiting royal. And then, of course, in our modern age, you've got to pose for a picture because this has got to go out on Twitter, right? 
And King James didn't know the royal protocol. He didn't know the royal protocol. He stood next to Kate Middleton, and he extended his big arm, sweaty arm. He hadn't even showered yet. He was still in his uniform, sweat all over him. Extended his big arm around her shoulder and pulled her close as the Duke is over here, and they snap a picture. And you can just kind of see that Kate Middleton is just kind of unsure about this. Not sure people are supposed to do this. The royal protocol is that except for shaking their hands when you meet them, you don't touch the royals. You don't touch them. King James didn't know. Ah, it was all okay. It was all in, in good fun and, and fine. You know, he was just being what Americans are. We're, we're buddy-buddy with, with everyone and with everything. It's what we do. He didn't realize that the royals represent what is altogether set apart, what is altogether transcendent and holy in British culture. And as we see that, we have to realize, as Isaiah did, that, that we also have broken royal protocol. This is what we do. We've, we've regarded what is holy as worldly, and we've, we've regarded as worldly what is holy. We fear and respect the wrong things. And so Isaiah says to Ahaz, look, stop worrying about what they, that is Israel and Syria and Assyria even, stop worrying about what they're going to do. And Ahaz, consider what Yahweh will do. He will be a sanctuary for you by faith, he says. If you would, by faith, follow after him, he'll be a sanctuary for you. Or he'll be a rock of stumbling for you otherwise. Peter the Apostle would draw on this phrase in his letter about the church. Talking about Jesus being the, the, the stumbling stone to so many who don't recognize and regard him for the Holy One that he is. God alone is transcendent. God alone is the one who rises above all things as holy, and so God alone is worthy of your fear. Christians, as you live in your justification, you have to recognize that the Holy One is the one who has called to you and said, you are mine. You belong to me. You have no fear to have. In fact, John tells us that the perfect love of Yahweh casts out unfounded worldly fears and sets all things into proper perspective. Yet despite the unfounded fears of His people, Yahweh is bringing redemption, even through the darkness of fear. He's doing it also despite the misdirected inquiries of His people's leaders. Okay, Ahaz... It's easy to beat up on him because he was such a misdirected leader. Ahaz was a poor king. He had seized control of temple worship, which is something that a king ought not to do. It's not his place. God has not given him the role of leading in temple worship. That's where the Holy One resides. The king does not belong there any more than anyone else. Ahaz had seized control of that. In fact, When Ahaz, the mouse, had called out to the cat, Assyria, come and help me. I'm your son. You're my father. Come and rescue me, he had said to the king of Assyria. Ahaz had also taken some of the gold and silver from the temple and sent it to the king of Assyria. Now, this is like a mouse sending a can of tuna to the cat and saying, hey, come and help me. What do you think the cat's going to do? Sniff the tuna and say, "Mm mm-mm. 
I bet there's more where that came from. And that's what the king of Assyria did. He knew there'd be more where that came from, and so he came running. He came straight to Damascus, to Assyria, and killed King Reason, who had threatened Ahaz. And Ahaz must have been thinking, success, this is exactly what I wanted. So Ahaz went up to visit this new king in Damascus. And there in Damascus, he visited the pagan temple and saw the the altar that was there. And he thought, that's more beautiful than the one that we have. I think I like that one. He got plans for the altar and he sent it back to Uriah the priest with instructions to remodel the temple. Uriah was his man and Uriah did it. And when Ahaz returned to, to Jerusalem to see his new, newly remodeled temple, he went in and did a little bit more. He adjusted some more things and removed some of what God had placed there. Ahaz had seized control of temple worship. He'd consulted with the Baals. He'd offered his own sons as sacrifices. He'd inquired of all the wrong authorities Ahaz had. And so God resorts to sarcasm here in verse 19. Did you, did you feel the sarcasm? When they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, shouldn't a people inquire of their God? I mean, you can hear the sarcasm, can't you? Why would they appeal to those who are dead in order to understand the living? How absurd that is. The the, the sarcasm is there because Ahaz should have known about the infamous predecessor king who came long before him, Saul, who had sought the wisdom of the mediums and the necromancers, the spiritists who would would call up the dead in order to seek their wisdom. And Saul had been rejected in the midst of all that. And so Isaiah has turned instead to what is true and sure. Verse 16, Isaiah says, Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I'll wait for the Lord who's hiding his face currently from the house of Jacob, and I'll hope in him. Isaiah had written down his words of prophecy, and he says, bind it up, seal it up. What he's saying is God has given a word, and it will come true, even though the king has inquired of falsehood. And so bind it up, protect it, and when this testimony does come true, it will be known by everyone. It will be an I told you so Unroll the scroll and open it up. See what it says. This is what I told you years ago. See what's happened now? Isaiah knew that the word of God would come true because it is the word of God. And so Isaiah turned to what's more sure than a medium or a spiritist. Yahweh is bringing redemption. He's he's bringing the, the glorious grace of redemption. He's doing it faithfully and patiently and persistently even despite the misdirected inquiries of the people's leaders. You know, sometimes entire denominations lose their way because their leaders have inquired of authorities that are false and don't even exist. That's happened many times throughout history. Our denomination was born of such a circumstance. And... May it never be that our denomination should get to the same circumstance itself. Oh, it, it could. Entire denominations have lost their way because their leaders have inquired of what is false. Sometimes individual churches go sour 
because their leaders inquire of what's false. Their, their leaders lose sight of the holiness of God and fail to recognize that he's the one who's the king, he's the one who's the shepherd and the leader, and let us follow where he has gone. Sometimes churches go sour because of that. Sometimes families, sometimes households find themselves on a destructive path because their leaders have lost their way. This is the kind of thing that happens. But even when leaders inquire of false authorities, Yahweh is still bringing his kingdom to bear. Even if he has to reject those leaders, even if he has to cut the tree off at the stump, so that it starts over. And how many times did that happen in the Old Testament? How many times does it continue to happen throughout church history? And yet God is persistent. Isaiah redirects the thinking here. In verse 20 he says, To the teaching and to the testimony. Remember, go back to what God has said. If they will not speak according to this word, it's because they have no dawn. There is no light coming for them. This word is, of course that Yahweh has given through Isaiah this holy seed, which is the stump. This is the hope of Israel, which Isaiah has given in this metaphor that's maybe sort of obscured to them at the time. But this holy seed is the stump. The virgin will be with child. She will give birth to one and call him, what? Emmanuel, because God is still with us, even if the tree is cut off at the stump. Apart from the hope of the gospel, there's no hope at all. God is, is bringing glory. He's bringing the glory of redemption despite the darkness. He's doing it as well despite the frustrated efforts of those who are misled. God is still bringing his redemption. And Ahaz, along with most of the, the kings of Judah and all of the kings of Israel, had misled God's people in so many ways. And in building his own little kingdom and and in refusing the grace of God, which had been extended to him in his crisis, Ahaz had pointed his people down the wrong path. And in the prophet's words, it would lead them to deep frustration. Verse 21, he says, They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry, and when they are hungry, they will be enraged, and they'll speak contemptuously against their king and their God, and turn their faces upward, and they will look to the earth, but behold, distress, darkness, and gloom. It's dark, isn't it? I mean, this is not what we want to hear at Christmas time, but you have to know that it's out of this that Christmas comes. It's out of this that Christmas is born and the light of glory comes through the darkness. When a Christian turns away from one temptation, as we call each other to do in repentance, you know repentance is turning. It's turning away from one thing and turning to another. But if you don't turn to the right thing, it's not repentance at all. When a Christian turns away from one temptation and turns to another temptation... All they'll find ultimately is frustration because they're looking to the wrong place for help. The, the, this people walking in the darkness, they, they'll look to the earth, but behold, distress, darkness, gloom, and that gloom can hit close to home. A Facebook post I saw the other day from a young mother that we know in Georgia 
went like this. She said, today has been one of those days that the weight of being a mother of two special needs children almost crushes you. I praise God for their sweet little lives that hopefully will do great things for the kingdom of God. But in truth, I find myself struggling with grief of what I wanted motherhood to be and with anger and wrongfully viewing myself as a martyr at times. I see my son melting down over nothing. But the grief and anger come from me thinking, why does it have to be this way? And this is when I know I must look to Christ for my strength because I'm weak and I'm broken without Him. Like a young mother in distress, the people of Judah were walking in darkness, but God was still at work. Isaiah the prophet is saying God is still at work. Listen, people of God, the stump is there. But the holy seed is the stump. There's life in the stump. God is at work still. That New Testament reading that we heard a while ago, that, that, that great little Advent picture of what happened in New Testament times, Matthew, the apostle, gives his Jewish perspective in the story of the wise men coming to Israel and, and coming to look for the newborn king, the newborn king of the Jews of which they had heard. And they, of course, go to the local authorities who maybe they assume are rejoicing at the birth of a newborn king. You know, most nations rejoice when such a thing happens. And they went to speak with Herod, the local king. Tell us, King Herod, where is this newborn king of the Jews that we've heard about? We've come to worship him. King Herod didn't know about this. He's troubled by it. I don't want another king to threaten my power and my reign here. And so he gathers together the chief priests and the scribes because he figures they must know where this king of the Jews is to be born if there's some word about it. And he asks them, where where is he to be born? And, And they rightly quote the prophet Micah. Now Micah was a contemporary of Isaiah. Micah prophesied and lived and spoke and and interacted with the same culture in which Isaiah did and spoke these words in the context perhaps even of King Ahaz. And this is what Micah said. You heard it moments ago. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd shepherd my people Israel. I don't know if that was a backhanded slap at King Ahaz, maybe. But out of Bethlehem, the little one of Judah would come a ruler of Judah, one who would actually shepherd my people Israel. Even out of the darkness cast by the human kingdoms that those like Ahaz have created comes still the light of God's kingdom. Even still. And at Christmas, that light comes through very ordinary means. Do you you know that? At Christmas, that comes through the very ordinary means of grace offered in the church. There's this funny little connection, very subtle connection between Isaiah's words here in chapter 8 and some doctrine of the church that we find later in the New Testament in Hebrews of all places. Isaiah had said in verse 18, he said, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord. What did Isaiah mean by that? 
Now, you may remember Isaiah did have children. He had two sons, and they had particular names that God had told him to give them. One was called, A Remnant Shall Return, and the other was called, The Prey Hastens and the Spoil Speeds. In other words, judgment is coming. His sons for sure were signs and portents in Israel from the Lord. Isaiah himself was as well. Isaiah held himself and his sons up as Signs from God to God's people, and indeed they were that. But the writer to Hebrews puts a little spin, a little theological spin on these words. In Hebrews chapter 2, when he's writing about the fact that Jesus, let us understand the nature of who this Jesus is. Not only is he God, but he became a man, and he's not ashamed to call us brothers in Sisters, to associate himself with us, to come in the flesh and to be with us. And there the writer of Hebrews quotes from a couple of different Old Testament places. One of them is this. And he puts these words in Jesus' mouth. I and the children God has given me. What children? What children has God given to Jesus? If I, Jesus, and the the children that God has given to me are signs and portents to the world in which he has placed us. What children has God given to Jesus but the church? A remnant, a sign of judgment maybe, all of those things for sure. But he goes on because as these children and brothers are flesh and blood, the church offers the hope of the gospel To the world that watches, since these children, Hebrews continues, share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. I and the children God has given me were were signs to the world, and because these children of mine share in flesh and blood, I also have taken on flesh and blood in order to to destroy the one who has the power of death. This is Christmas. This is is what Christmas is coming out of the darkness. You know, at, at Christmas we think of so many different things. And we associate so many traditions and such with it. But may it be that above all those things is this thing. God is bringing the glory of redeeming grace to his people. Patiently, persistently, powerfully, even stubbornly, and even through the darkness. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. O Lord, we pray that you would give us faith again to believe. Strengthen, Lord, our hearts so that we might recognize and see the good that you are doing, that you are bringing about redemption and glory by the work of your Son as your spirit moves and applies these truths to your people and calls them to yourself, even here among us. Lord, would you do that for us? Would you strengthen us to your own glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.